0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Group Chat, your weekly podcast for everything disability. Today, I have with me Jonathan Shah, EBD, and myself, David D. Today, we have a guest with us, Graham Innes. Thank you very much, David. And welcome, everyone, to uh, Group Chat, your weekly podcast for everything disability. Today, we have a very special guest, Graham Innes. Good on you. Hello, Graham. How are you?
1: I'm well. How are you?
0: Good, good. Thank you for joining us on the show. Just before we do get started, uh, do you want to tell us a bit about yourself?
1: Well, I'm now a company director. I sit on a number of um, national and uh, state government boards. Uh, uh, I used to be the Disability Discrimination Commissioner with the Human Rights Commission. Uh, I did that job for about nine years. That was about uh, almost nine years ago now. So in that role, I was involved with all sorts of areas such as transport standards, access to buildings. Before that, I've been an advocate for most of my life. I was actually chair of the Disability Advisory Council back in 1992 when the Disability Discrimination Act was developed and passed by parliament. I'm also a lawyer and I had uh, some involvement in drafting that legislation. Also, while I was commissioner at the uh, Human Rights Commission, I was involved in participating in the development of the Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities, uh, which is a United Nations document. And we did that work at the UN headquarters in New York between about 2005 and 2009. So I think that's me.
0: Wow, so much you've done in your time. In terms of early advocacy work, you have a long history of advocacy for human rights and disability rights. Can you take us back to the early days of your advocacy work? And what inspired you to become a passionate advocate for those uh, causes?
1: Uh, my first advocacy was when back when I was a university student studying law. So back in the 1970s, I was involved in a group lobbying uh, Vision Australia to make Provide support for uh, getting access to textbooks in braille and in audio. At that stage, it was on cassettes. I recognised as a student and uh, as a member of Blind Citizens Australia, which is the advocacy organisation of people who are blind or vision impaired, I recognised the power or the strength of operating as a group rather than trying to achieve things individually. And so I got together with a number of other students who also had the challenge of getting access to material, and we successfully lobbied Vision Australia to change their processes so that the textbooks could be made available in a more sort of timely manner. That was really the first piece of advocacy that I was involved with.
0: Interesting, interesting. Uh, in terms of your role as Disabilities Discrimination Commissioner, You served as Australia's Disability Discrimination Commissioner from 2005 to 2014. Can you share some key experiences and
1: accomplishments
0: during your tenure in this role, stories or moments
1: that stand out to you? Well, I guess um I was always keen to be involved in this role since I'd been helped to develop the Disability Discrimination Act uh, 10 or 12 years beforehand. And so I was very excited when I was appointed to the role in 2005. I knew a few things. I knew, I knew that I would need to work with the disability sector, with the community, if we were going to achieve change. And I'd learned that change usually comes far more slowly than you'd like it to, but you can achieve it if you keep working on it. And there are some real opportunities or windows that sometimes arrive and you need to be opportunistic and take those opportunities and use those things to achieve the change that you want. Whilst I was commissioner, the team at the Human Rights Commission were involved in working with government on the development of the DDA transport standards and the access to premises standards. They have made huge changes in Australian transport and buildings It's not perfectly accessible, but it's way, way more accessible than it was back in 2002 when that standard was first passed. When I was involved in the passage of that standard, I was actually the deputy commissioner. I wasn't the commissioner then, but did a lot of work on that standard. The result of that standard has been billions of dollars of infrastructure change so that much of our public transport systems are now far more accessible. Also, much of our our buildings are far more accessible as the standards require that new buildings or existing buildings where there are major changes being made to the building um, have to comply with the Access to Premises uh, standards. I knew that uh, one of the things that uh, really needed to happen in Australia if people with disabilities were to be included in all areas of society, such as jobs and participation in society, was that we needed to be able to uh, get access to things, to transport, to buildings and all that sort of thing. So they were the building blocks, and we were able to use the Disability Discrimination Act. We were able to take a number of complaints that were made under the Act and utilise them as incentives for government and industry to change the way that they operated, so that we got much better access than we had.
0: Good job you're doing in the community, Grant. Give up the good work. Uh, In terms of championing uh, equal rights, you've led public inquiries on topics like same-sex entitlements and played a pivotal role in making uh, buildings and public transport accessible for people with disability. Would you be able to share a story with us?
1: Well, um, I was also human rights commissioner for a time and that's why I ran the same-sex, same-entitlements um, inquiry. And uh, that was soon after I joined the commission and, and that was a, a no-brainer really because um, people were treated differently simply because of who they loved. That just seemed completely unfair to me. And so we, we ran a public inquiry, we got people to tell their stories, we conducted hearings around the country, we made a whole bunch of recommendations that government should change over 100 laws which related to people of same-sex orientation. These covered things like tax law, child support law, other areas of federal law. And all of those law changes were enacted by the government at the time. So in that sense, that was a great success. And, you know, the reason that happened was because of the strength of lobbying of the same-sex community behind those recommendations and taking a a unified position on those recommendations. One of the decisions that we made as part of that inquiry was that we didn't make a recommendation about same-sex marriage and that was largely my decision. I made a judgment call that if we put same-sex marriage into the recommendations then uh, we wouldn't be able to maintain the support that we had for the inquiry. And I've always worked on the basis that um, 70% of something is better than 100% of nothing. And so um, we we took that strategic decision. Some in the same-sex lobbies were pretty disappointed with that decision. It probably given the angst and arguments that occurred uh, when the same sex marriage um, plebiscite took place maybe 10 or 12 years later it probably was the right decision it suggests to me that you know we wouldn't have got through the things that we did back in 2007 i think if we tried to include same sex marriage that's one of the stories of being in a public role like that and running an inquiry like that you have to make judgment calls I think we got that call right, but I'm not claiming that um, I got all the calls, uh, judgment calls that I've made over the years right. Um, Sometimes you don't, but uh, that's part of the process of being in in the role such that I was in.
0: It's all about recognising human rights. It's very important. In terms of inspiring uh, change, advocacy often involves confronting challenges. Uh, Can you share a particular challenge you faced during your advocacy journey and how you successfully navigated that? What did you learn from this experience?
1: Probably the biggest challenge I faced in my advocacy journey was when I lodged a disability discrimination complaint against uh, Sydney trains. I used to travel to and from work by train. When everyone who could see could look at the screens uh, on the platforms or in the trains or, or the signage on the stations and see where they were, I couldn't do that. And what I sought was to know where I was. And I I sought that through audible announcements on trains. These had been promised by state governments since the 1980s, before the Disability Discrimination Act uh, was enacted, and they were actually a requirement in the first five years of the DDA transport standards. So governments were required in the standards to make those announcements available by December 2007. That hadn't happened in New South Wales trains. And so I went to the state minister and said, look, this is a standard. The requirement is that you're supposed to make these announcements. They're not being made. Every time I catch a train where there's no announcement, I'm going to lodge a DDA complaint. And I actually ended up lodging about 50 complaints, 30 of which went to the federal court because the department wouldn't resolve them by conciliation, which is the process that you can use. You know, under the Disability Discrimination Act, and there was a finding made in my favour, which meant that Sydney Trains would need to make these announcements available, and the, and those announcements are now made on trains. the The challenge for me was that for the first time, I wasn't doing this as commissioner. I was doing this as Graham Innes, who you know used to travel to work by train each day, doing it as an individual, because that's the way the DDA works at the moment. And that's probably a problem with the DDA, but, you know, that's a topic for another conversation. So I had to go to court. My wife and I, we knew that our house was at risk if we lost because it was possible for costs to be awarded against us in the federal court we took the decision that this was an important matter of principle. But that was a pretty challenging process for me to go through. And I think the way I got through it was just the support of the individuals around me, both people who were blind, who supported my uh, initiative, and also just people who generally supported the success of human rights causes like that and kept telling me how valuable what I was doing was. But that was a pretty scary process for quite a while.
0: How important was the social
1: supports in those times? Sorry, Jonathan. How important was
0: the social supports in those times?
1: Oh, very important. Very important and that's that's what I say, um, uh, the support of my my wife and my family, uh, the support of other people with disabilities who saw what I was trying to do and, and supported me for, for doing it and the support of friends and supporters, um, much of which I um, heard about through social media. I was very much on Twitter at, at that time before Elon Musk destroyed it. So that was critical to my success to keep me focused and to keep me determined to keep pushing forward.
0: Thank you very much for the sharing of- That story, Graham. I Australia's Immigration Detention Centre is significant work. Could you elaborate on this experience and your insights into how it relates to human rights and equality?
1: The inspection of uh, immigration detention centres were part of my role as uh, Human Rights Commissioner and I did those inspections around the the country and that was uh, an important part of our obligations under both the Human Rights Act, the Refugees Convention and the Convention Against Torture and Ill Treatment. They're all United Nations documents and um, part of my function as the Human Rights Commission was to inspect those detention centres and report to government about the conditions in them and you know how people were treated and uh, whether the laws were appropriate. So I had a couple of years in that role inspecting those centres and it was a pretty... It was pretty tough work meeting with a whole lot of people who had come here seeking asylum, who had made the really difficult decision to leave their own country because, you know, they felt that they were no longer safe in their own country and who'd come to ours. And instead of us welcoming them as guests and as potential citizens, as we did with a whole lot of people from overseas in the 50s and 60s and 70s, uh, we locked them up in immigration detention, which seemed a a pretty bizarre way to approach the the situation. So my job was to go around and uh, meet with these people, talk to them, visit the centres and then make recommendations to government as to you know what changes should be made.
0: Throughout your career, you've received several honours degrees. What emotions did you experience when you were honoured with these
1: degrees? And what do they mean to you? Well, they mean a heck of a lot. Uh, recognition by your peers and by academic society and academic bodies such as universities, means a heck of a lot to me. Um, I was honoured to become a member of the Order of Australia uh, when I worked on the Disability Discrimination Act back in the um, the 90s and then to receive uh, degrees from four different universities, honorary doctorates, when I finished my work as Human Rights Commission. They meant a lot to me and I was very humbled that people thought that my work was of such value that I would receive those awards. But, you know, the important thing for me was making change which meant that people with disabilities were more included in Australia so it wasn't about me it was about changing our society to be far more welcoming of people with disabilities and to give us a chance that is people with disabilities a chance to live our lives as part of society not as not as a separate group, to live our lives um, not separated in sheltered workshops or in segregated schools or in segregated accommodation, but to be able to live in the community, uh, to be able to work in the community, to be able to participate in the community and to contribute in the community through the payment of taxes. Because that's what most of us really want to do, but we can't do it unless the community includes us and welcomes us in. I gave a, a National Press Club address when I finished my work at the Human Rights Commission, and I talked about or used a phrase which I've used a lot over the years, which is a reference to the soft bigotry of low expectations. What I mean by that is that um, society demonstrates its uh, soft bigotry by making very negative and limiting assumptions about what we as people with disability will be able to do or more, more to the point won't be able to do. And I'm sure all of you have run into this whenever you interact in society, when you get into a taxi or a bus or a train or when you're on your way to work or to some sort of community activity or when you're trying to get a job and can't get a job and people make assumptions about you that assume you won't be able to do a whole lot of things that you know you can And that if they gave you just the slightest chance, you would demonstrate you could. And that's what I mean by the soft bigotry of low expectations. And uh, Australians with disability still experience it. Every time I go out, In public, I have people who talk to the person I'm with rather than talking to me. I have people who want to treat me differently because I can't see and they make a whole lot of other assumptions about what I won't be able to do. I have people in airport security processes who refuse to uh, let me go through the the standard security process because I travel with a guide dog and want me to go through some separate and far more invasive, far more intrusive process. Yeah, everywhere I, I go, I couldn't tell you the number of times where. I've paid a bill and the change has been given to my wife or my daughter or whoever I'm with because why would we give it to him he can't see? Just little things like that which demonstrate a very negative and limiting attitude towards people with disabilities. And until we solve that problem, we won't solve the uh, problem of inclusion of people with disabilities and we won't be allowed by the community to live our lives to to the fullest extent possible.
0: Uh, Enjoying our uh, accessibility for people with disabilities is crucial. Can you describe a story or project? Were you a part of making buildings and public transport more accessible?
1: Well, um, the access to premises standards and the access to transport standards, and they they were really laws which made buildings far more accessible. Every time I go to the Brisbane Convention Centre, I live up near Brisbane now in northern New South Wales in Tweed Heads, and every time I go to the Brisbane Convention Centre, I catch the lift. There's a glass-sided lift out the front of the centre, right next to the sweeping set of stairs that most people enter the centre. And that lift is there because a guy called Kevin Cox, who later became the Queensland Disability Discrimination Commissioner, thought it was unfair that because he used a wheelchair, he would have to go into the centre through a different entrance, not the the front entrance, but some back entrance. And he felt that sent a real signal that people with disabilities weren't welcome in what was Queensland's centre of entertainment and art and activity. And so he lodged a, a complaint and I certainly, you know, supported him in the lodging of that complaint. And the Queensland government was forced to install the, um, the glass-sided uh, lift that I've talked about that goes up right next to this sweeping flight of stairs so that we as people with disabilities can enter that centre in the same place as everyone else does. That's a really meaningful symbol for me of what access to premises means, that we can go in the front door um, along with everyone else.
0: Yeah, no, I totally agree your advocacy has covered various aspects of human rights and you perceive the intersectionality of different human rights issues and what can advocates do to address then comprehensively.
1: I suppose, you know, you start from a point that we're all humans and that a whole lot of issues of disempowerment are part of the human condition. It might be disability, it might be aboriginality, it might be that we come from a different cultural or linguistic background. And these things aren't just separated off in separate boxes. If I'm a First Nations person and have a disability, then those are two areas of disadvantage that I carry and they intersect, they cross with each other. So we see that the proportion of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are in prison is way, way higher than white Australians. And many of those people who are in prison are Aboriginal people with disabilities. So that's, that's the, a practical example of intersectionality. And it's really important for advocates to recognise that we're all humans. We all bring our, our life experience and our disadvantage to the table. And so you can't separate those things out. They can have an impact which is greater than the sum of the two intersecting areas. So that's really what intersectionality means.
0: Interesting, interesting. What advice would you give to individuals who aspire to follow in your footsteps and become advocates for human rights and disability rights? Are there personal experiences that have shaped uh, your
1: appearance? It's always hard to advise other people who are going to carry out advocacy. You have to be committed and passionate about what you're doing. You have to recognize that the journey is a, a long journey of small steps. You don't often get the big wins you get little incremental changes and it's really important to celebrate those changes when they come and recognize the impact that they uh, that they have it's also really important to work together as a group of people with disabilities. I would never go into an advocacy situation on my own. If it was me that was advocating, I would always take someone with me and I've always been happy to go with people who are as their support person when they've been advocating in a particular situation. It's really important to have that personal support and encouragement right next to you and someone else to be able to talk through the challenges and and the best way forward. As I said, recognize that it's a long journey with small steps and it will always be much slower than you want it to be, because if you're advocating for change and uh, an increase uh, in the availability of human rights, that change will always go more slowly than you want it to. We as change agents, that's something that we need to recognise, not accept, uh, but understand so that we can keep on going with that journey. So those are the sorts of things, I think, that are that are important to recognise as an advocate and to keep progressing with.
0: Awesome, awesome. Great leader everyone in your community, and speaking of our future goals, looking ahead, what are some of your goals and aspirations as an educator and a gentler? What stories do you have to create or influence in the future? in these uh,
1: roles? Oh, well, I want to continue the change journey that I've been on for most of my life. I want to achieve all the things that I've talked about in terms of that attitude change. I think that's a key thing. And I want to make sure that more people with disabilities are employed. We're employed at a rate 30% lower than the general population and that hasn't changed in four or five decades. So we need to address that. So I want to be involved in that. And I want to keep ensuring that people with disabilities have moved much more to the centre of the conversation in the last 10 or 15 years. I want to try and make sure that that keeps, keeps happening. So I'm very happy to make a contribution to that. But I'm very excited because 10 or 20 years ago, sometimes it used to feel to me that I was the only voice or public figure lobbying for these changes. That is not the case now. So many people are stepping up. People with disabilities are Putting themselves forward and being put forward by their allies and supporters to speak on behalf of us and to carry those journeys on that I've talked about. I'm coming towards, in broad terms, towards the end of my work in this area now. I mean, I'm a lot closer to the end than to the beginning, but I'm very confident that there are people there with me and behind me who will carry on the uh, the work.
0: Yeah, a great leader you are in this face. So okay? I'm going to educate and. Uh... I'm more than happy to follow your footsteps. Uh, you're doing such amazing work, Graham, and thank you very much for taking the time to be with us on the show today.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure. It's always great to talk with people such as yourselves and share some of the lessons I've learned and hopefully pass them on so that you know you don't need to have to go back and repeat them. You can learn from those and build on the foundations that I and many, many others have been involved with laying. Thank you,
0: for on the show. And we have to
1: the Thanks, Jonathan. No, it's been great to be here.
0: Yeah, thank you very much for your time. I right. you've been watching Chat. You're always gonna broadcast so everything civilian. Goodbye for now. <laughs>